Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, up to chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's join together and pray. Father, your word is light. Your word is food. Your word is a sword. We pray that you would do all these things as we open it up, that you would pierce our hearts, that we might see the light and taste and see that the Lord is good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to start by saying the intended title for this sermon is Christ in the House. Uh, Divine Relationships was my first title, but I could not figure out how to work the Trello board that's the, you know, the web board that you put things in. And I thought I saved it, and uh, I'm going to learn this week how to do that. And uh, hopefully I won't have those problems again. But Christ in the house is what I'd like to think about. And as we get started, I want to remind you of the film, the children's story, Nanny McPhee. Is anybody saying Nanny McPhee? Okay, not many of you. A few, all right, we've got two hands up for that one over there. Um, Nanny McPhee tells the story of a widower who has seven ill-mannered children, and they have driven off no less than 17 nannies until magical Nanny McPhee shows up at their home. And when she shows up, immediately the home is startled because her features are grotesque. She has a big nose and warts and protruding teeth Uh, wearing black. She's just really unpleasant to look at. But what's uglier are the kids' behavior. They're disrespectful. They play tricks upon her constantly. You see the ugliness of their spirit. But a transformation occurs. Uh, Because of a certain need they have, they begin to turn for her for advice. And they begin to listen to her, and they begin to obey her. And as they become transformed, lo and behold, her appearance becomes transformed. And she becomes more beautiful to them, more appealing to them, more motherly to them. Well, I would say that this could be a parallel for what we see today. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying that when Christ enters the house, everything becomes transformed even that which which might appear offensive to us. Words like submission, ideas like obey in everything. Even how in the world can you redeem the thought of a bondservant or a slave? 
And this is because as Christ enters in, he makes a transformation at the level of our calling and how we understand our relationships, whether it be our family or our work. Now here he's talking to an ancient Roman household, but we in turn can apply this to our day and age. What are our core relationships? How we relate to family, how we relate to our work. And there's two things about this calling I think are highlighted in this passage. And that is the beauty of humility and freedom. Humility and freedom. So let's look at those two things together. If you are familiar with the life of Jesus Christ, if you're familiar with how he lived through the Gospels, you might see a reflection in every commandment that was given here. Think about it for a second. Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. He is simultaneously equal to God the Father, yet he devotes his earthly life to submitting to the Father and serving him. Jesus is the ultimate example of a husband. He is the spiritual husband of God's people, of the bride, which is the church. And he is to lay his life down for her. He does so literally. Jesus is the ultimate example of an obedient child, the son who is faithful in all the commandments he has before God. Jesus is an example of the everlasting father, as Isaiah would call him, a benevolent protector, not a father that provokes and discourages, but one that built up. And lastly, even, even, Jesus is the ultimate example of a slave and a servant. As he washes his disciples' feet as a common house slave would, and he gives over his life for his children. Philippians chapter 2 would say this, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see, Christ is behind every one of these commandments. He's realized in those commandments. So, as Paul said earlier, if you have been raised with Christ, if you've come to know Jesus Christ and he has spiritually united you to himself, if your life is hidden in Christ, if you have been chosen and holy and dearly loved by Christ, if you've come to grasp what he said earlier, that you're renewed in the knowledge after the image of your Creator where there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, for Christ is all in all. If you understand that, it must transform your relationships. The gospel must transform our relationships with one another. And we see this in a couple ways. One, he would talk about the marriage relationship. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because just a couple weeks we looked at the fuller passage on marriage out of Ephesians chapter 5. You can go back and listen to that. But I do want to say a few things. In ancient Rome, there were three categories of marriage. But all of it boiled down to what was called manus form of marriage. Manus means hand. And it represented that a woman was transferred from the hand and authority of her father to the authority of the husband. And so in Roman understanding, the woman had no rights of her own. 
In fact, the husband, when he married her, would in a sense adopt her, so she would, she would have rights similar to the child in his family. He wouldn't treat her like a child, but the point is she only had rights either under her father or her husband. That changed under Augustus where something was instituted called free marriage. Free marriage, it sounds like it might have happened in the 1960s. But still the essential value of the woman was to produce citizens or children for the state. In fact, later on, because uh, marriage had gone down, it, you, uh, Augustus commanded if you were between the age of 20 and 50, if you didn't get married, you were taxed three times higher. And there was a premium put on the idea of women producing children. In fact, the word matrimony comes from the Latin word matir, which means mother. So essentially, the whole idea of marriage was the purpose that she would just produce children. The husband, on the other side, had no real legal requirement to give his heart to his wife, but just to be faithful to the law and faithful to the obligations he had taken. So as I spent time this week reading about Roman marriage, and it was sort of fascinating, all its ins and outs and all its classes, there's one thing you didn't see represented, that marriage is about service and it's about love. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul goes here. Speaking to these ancient Roman marriages, he says, let me talk to you about love and service. He says to the wife, although you are equal to your husband, just as Christ is equal to the Father, although you are a helper, meaning an ally of your husband, helper is referred to God in the scriptures, so that's the power you have to help your husband, even though you are excellent, as Proverbs 31 would say, with all your gifts and talents, the wife models the humility of Jesus in the marriage. And I will say, being married to a woman that does that, it constantly instructs me about Jesus Christ as she faithfully takes on that service and support. But it's not only a role model to the husband, it's a role model to the entire church. Because if we went to Ephesians chapter 5, and I said this then, before you even get to any passage about a wife modeling submission, you hear Paul saying to the entire Christian community, submit to one another. And so as the wife in the Mary does this, she reminds the entire church that we should be submitting to one another and submitting to Christ. She's transformed in her understanding. And so while society in that day would see wife only as a, a child producer, or maybe in our day where a woman is seen valuable only in as much as she is superwoman, as she leans in and she does everything, works and mothers and all these things, Paul would say, no, I want you to remember that your ultimate value is in Christ. He says, submit, serve, support in the Lord. It's before Christ the Lord, whatever you do, that's where your value is. And then to husbands, he says, you know, you don't enter marriage as a consumer. Whether it is to get babies or to get sex or to get someone to help you with your life and career, no. You're called to maybe even a greater task. I call you to love as Christ loved the church. That means that you would sacrifice and lay everything down for the sake of loving your wife. You know, you, maybe it's your career. Uh, maybe it's your own ambitions. Maybe it's your sexual desire for a time. Whatever it would be, Paul is saying, 
Husbands, I want you to love. There was no obligation on Roman husbands to love. But Paul is saying, as Christ is in the house, this is how you should behave in a marriage. But not just marriage, family, parents and children. Now you have to understand the very fact that Paul addresses indirectly wives and children and servants and bond servants and slaves would have been stunning to the ancient reader because they understood the only person that should be addressed would be the father or the master. So Paul already is speaking about their humility but affirming the value in that society of these individual members as he speaks to them, including children. In Christ, they're called to model and obey not just what they want in different areas, but in everything. You know, in Nanny McPhee, the film, uh, the kids really are ugly when they're disobedient. But when they're obedient, they become morally beautiful and strong. I will tell you personally that several times, uh, as I have watched uh, a child joyfully uh, obey their parents, it has been a challenge to me. I see something in them that I wasn't when I was their age, that I struggle to be even at this age. You know, there's a maturity and a Christ-likeness in them. So I want to say to you kids, if there's any here, right? I think they may have left, but if there are, there are a few here, I want to say to them, you, so you can tell them, that they are a model for us adults in the way that they seek to obey like Jesus. And it's not only that, it really is the foundation of society. When you go to the fifth commandment and you read, honor your father and mother, that is the commandment that theologians will generally then unpack all ideas of authority and obeying authority. All institutes like government or whether it be church. This is the way that we understand our disposition to those that have been placed above us by God's grace. It points up. So a kid can never be outside of the home what they're not becoming in the home. And as they do that, society then is built up with people that can appreciate God-given authority and not despise it. Which on our day, you know, authority tends to get a bad rap, in part because it's not Jesus' authority. It's wielded like the world. That's one reason. But also, there's a certain independence that really renders authority primitive and unnecessary and even oppressive. In the church, something's different. But then Paul turns to fathers. This is interesting. He doesn't mention fathers and mothers. He goes to fathers because they had a particular role of leadership and authority. And he speaks to them and says, do not provoke your children. That means do not abuse your authority, do not discipline harshly, don't make it hard for your kids to obey. You know, don't discipline them and talk to them in a way where they feel discouraged and exasperated. Exasperated would mean that they have a righteous reason to be angry. And maybe some of you grew up in homes like that, where you felt like, you know, the only answer you ever got was because I told you so where you felt like there was a hypocrisy and what was modeled before you was a provoking. Instead of provoking, parents are to stir, not stunt, the godliness in the lives of their children and not misuse their authority. This is an area that, I'll tell you, I think has been the most challenging to me personally in the area of control. Uh, you know, when you are... Um, a parent of a small child, you obviously are in control of a lot. 
when they sleep, what they eat, who they play with, where they go to school, right? And we do it with a good heart and a good intention. But I tell you, it's really hard to begin to release that control. And I think it's especially true if you are a first-generation Christian parent. My parents were not Christians, but in some ways, they were better at releasing me than I have been with my own daughters. And it's all in the name of the gospel, right? Some of it's when your kid is born, you, you sort of see them as the great gospel project. I'm going to have this chance. They're, they're going to, you know, they're going to really understand the grace of God, and they're real again. But all the time you realize, am I able to release my children to God? Because they stand under him primarily, not me. And so this is the call in the parenting relationship. But lastly, between servants and masters, and I'll eventually say between employee and employer, because that's what I think is being modeled here. But we've got to say something about this. You may have heard that read and immediately you were offended, you were confused. Does the Bible actually teach slavery? What's going on here? Let me just briefly address this. Now, if you go to ancient Israel, God did allow indentured servitude. That meant when an Israelite fell on hard times, they could hire themselves out to be um, a servant or what was regarded sometimes as a slave. But they were never property. They were never owned. God provide provisions for their freedom. And the owners, so to speak, and it wasn't the owners, the masters were always to regard them with dignity and justice. It was a temporary position that was understood that they got into because they fell in hard times. But when it comes to Roman slavery, the, Rome, the Roman slave had no personhood. They, they were considered his property. At a whim, they could be punished or executed, much like chattel slavery in America and England, even though there are some parts of Roman slavery where Rome was actually beginning to change, where slaves were becoming released more and more. And you could find slaves that were actually professionals, doctors and accountants. But still at this time, there were slaves that had no personage or property. And this is where the Bible stands and thoroughly condemns that. Let me read some scriptures. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Can't get any more serious than that. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. In the New Testament, we find Paul saying that in the group called the ungodly are enslavers. And then the book of Revelation where judgment is dealt out by God. The final judgment upon Babylon, the city of man, the downfall on those that traffic slaves Human souls, that's actually what it says. The traffic human souls, showing the dignity. So the vision of the kingdom of God does not include slavery in the scripture. But however, think about the situation Paul is in. If Paul would have called these slaves simply to revolt, he would have been calling them to destruction and being crushed at that time. He would not be doing anything to deal with their present problems, their present condition, or their present miseries. This is what Paul is trying to deal with in this passage as he talks about the household. And so he takes first steps first. The first step is he begins to regulate the institute of master and servant and slave through the gospel, telling the masters that you are no, you know, you are no greater in the eyes of God than your slave, and you have a master in heaven, and you must treat them with justice and kindness. And then via the gospel, he begins to preach from the inside 
out. The gospel that Paul begins to preach that eventually was behind the abolition of you know, slavery in England and America is the gospel that Paul was speaking and preaching all the time. And an example we have actually is a master that was in Colossae, the letter that we're talking about. His name was Philemon. It's a book in the Bible. He had a slave that ran away and he came and met Paul and he became converted and became a Christian and he was useful to Paul. And Paul appeals to Philemon and says, would you receive him back not as a slave, but as a brother? And so Paul begins to do that work And we should also realize as he gives this to slaves, he doesn't do it lightheartedly because he himself is in chains for the gospel. He's imprisoned. He knows what it's like to have no freedom. But he calls them to be faithful in the condition they happen to be in, just like Joseph was faithful in the condition that they were in. But there's some bigger issues here I think we can glean, aside from the fact of of the issue of indentured servants and slaves in Rome. And that is this. There are principles about what it means for employees and employers. And here I want to move to the freedom part to close things out. Um, There is a freedom that comes when Christ enters the house. Uh, I've already mentioned some of it. The freedom that the wife has to uh, not primarily serve her children or her husband to serve Christ The freedom that the husband has to not be domineering, to lay down his life. The freedom that the parents' children have. But what about work? Three things. First of all, when Christ enters the work life, we get freedom from work anxiety. There's a lot written these days on work anxiety. Let me give you some stats. 56% of people experience workplace anxiety about their performance. 51% with their coworkers. 50% about the quality of their workplace, 43% in their relationship to their supervisor, and three-fourths of people polled said that it's carried into their day-to-day lives outside of their work. Anxiety. Symptoms show up in different ways. It would be uh, trouble, uh, tension with clients or colleagues, difficulty uh, being preoccupied with fear, turning down responsibilities that are given out of fear. For some people, it's even as drastic as not being able to ride the elevator or take a flight somewhere for work. We find ourselves riddled with work anxiety. And how does Christ enter the house and change that? You can imagine that no one was more anxious than a slave. I mean, his very life was on the line. And yet what Paul says is, I want you to take your eyes off your earthly boss, and I want you to lift your eyes to your heavenly boss, the Lord Christ. I love that phrase he uses. You don't find it often, where he says, I want you to see who you're really employed by. No one is higher than the Lord Christ. The Lord Messiah is your Lord and job, and he is a good boss. You ultimately have a good boss. It's God. No matter what happens day to day or what happens tomorrow in the office, as you keep in mind, he is the one that I'm serving here. And I can withstand what occurs to me. And if you are a boss, your obligation is to model that good boss. Are you doing that? Have you taken on just kind of the ethos of Washington, D.C. in your bossing, in your managing? Or are you thinking about it more through the, the outside of Christ in the line? And you see that you have value in your work. Think about this. When Jesus Christ came to earth, the Son of God, every job that he did was beneath him. 
I mean, he's the high king of heaven, right? He's the great glorious king of the universe. Every job he was given, whether it was working as a tradesman or whether he was, you know, helping out at a wedding or whether he was, whatever it was, I mean, it's ultimately beneath him. So what enabled him to be faithful for 33 years, even to the point of death? It was his father. He constantly was referring to my father. I ain't working for you. I'm working for him. He's the one that I'm before all the time. That gave him energy to do the most menial tasks and the most arduous tasks. Freedom from work anxiety. Also, freedom from bad motives. He mentions to the slaves, you know, don't do your work out of eye service or people-pleasing or insincerity. It'd be interesting if we could put a monitor on ourselves or other people and to see how their work productivity increased when the boss was in or out of the room or for students, whether the teacher was in or out of the room, right? We don't change that much, do we? When the members in the office were, you know, furiously working, when the boss is in there, all of a sudden we have so much to do. We become busy in a way that we normally aren't busy eye service, or maybe it's people-pleasing. We don't understand that our work is to God, but we're constantly thinking about that. And people-pleasing can actually cause you to breach your integrity in your work, because you'll do anything to get that slap on the back. Or you find yourself just trying to avoid work. I I had a job when I was in college uh, working on a grounds crew at Pitt University. And I was working with most of the baseball players on the Pitt baseball team and some older guys. And I remember our, our supervisor, get this, his name was Burkhammer. I mean, is that a great supervisor job? Burkhammer. And, uh, you know, I learned as soon as I got there, I was working the first day and I was trying to be diligent. One of the guys said, slow, slow down. Don't work so hard. I mean, you know, that's going to mean we get more work to do. And then before the end of the summer, I was fully discipled. Whenever we saw Burkhammer's truck going around, man, you know, we were hiding in the basement of the academic buildings. It was like hide and seek. These are grown people, right? Having jobs by God. And so, you know, we have this tendency in our lives uh, for bad motives to do our work. And the thing is, it makes your work insincere. When we're not doing a cry, it's really insincere. And Paul says, you're better than that. Whatever you do, the Christian is the person that ought to be working, whether the boss is in the room or not, or the teacher's in the room, because God is in the room. So the presence of God, th- this, is, this is ultimately where we're going. How you and I work says a lot about how keen we are to the presence of God. You know, whether we are changing diapers, whether we're doing dishes, whether we're taking out the trash, whether we're a senator, whether we're a sanitation worker. But lastly, freedom from laziness. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. I've been reading through this book that uh, one of our elders gave me called River of Doubt, And it's really uh, such a great book. It's the true story of Theodore Roosevelt's journey down the Amazon. Uh, You know, he was a great naturalist, and after uh, he didn't win a third term, he he wanted to go on an adventure, and this was a river that no one had really charted. No one had survived charting. They lost, you know, several people going into it. It's just fascinating. But Roosevelt is, is working with a Brazilian colonel, Rondon, 
And this, this colonel, in many ways, is Roosevelt's match. These guys are fascinating when you begin to read about them. And their team was about 21 volunteers. And Rondon hired one person that he did not know, but he hired him because he had a strapping physique, good health, and a lot of enthusiasm. That is until they went through the first set of Whitewater Rapids. Then his enthusiasm went away. And he became a great liability in the party. Rondon wrote this in his diary. He said, in the expedition, no one relied upon the assistance of his strength and least of all, of his will. <laughs> what a terrible thing to be said of someone. No one relied on his strength, least of all, his will. Roosevelt was a little less kind. He said he's an inborn lazy shirk with a heart as ferocious as a cur in the body of a bullock. Basically what he was saying is, you know, a cur, a cur dog, just like a runt and a bullock's a bull. But ultimately the only way they could ever get this guy to do something was either through fear of punishment or abandonment. And I was thinking, you know, how often do we relate to God that way? The only way God can really get us to do something is we motivate ourselves like he might leave me or he's going to get me. And it can even be with our work, whether it's work in the church, work in our relationships, work at work. But my friends, the gospel gives us so much better. Paul, Paul is saying, don't you understand the gospel? You have been freed from the threat, of, the threat of punishment. You have been freed from the threat of abandonment, a father that will never leave you. You have everything you need to flourish and be bold and be courageous and be the sort of team member that people go, man, I can rely on their will and I can rely on their effort and their strength because they're empowered by the gospel. I mean, I, I'd ask you, what is your energy bar for the morning when you go to work? Pay attention this week to what runs through your head. Is it anxiousness? I got this client. Is it the chance you might be able to, you know, prove yourself? Is it the chance you're hoping to get an attaboy, girl at work? Where do you wake up in the morning going, my motivation, my energy bar today is the gospel and the gospel of grace. And so Christ enters our house, whatever your core relationships are, and he aims to transform them. Do we see Jesus? Do we see Christ in our relationships? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, entering our hearts and our lives and liberating us. I pray for everybody uh, within the sound of this passage, first of all, that those that haven't entered into relationship with you, would you enter their house even tonight? We pray that they would open up the door and come to know the living God. And for those of us that do know you, Lord, we pray that we would not take for granted knowing you with, by being transformed by you. Would you work in every area of our lives? In Christ's name, amen.